Guys, you know you better watch out. Them girls, them girls are only about that thing, that thing, that thing. This is not just another fitness podcast. Why? I touch on subjects that not only have I experienced, but most likely you or a person you know has probably experienced it as well. I created the Me Movement on the mic to provide you with relatable content and information on areas of movement, mindset and health. I'm on a mission to help you filter through life, to help you break free of the fitness stereotypes and embrace you while still enjoying a gelato or two. So join me, Sally, and let's get this episode started. Hello, Cliff. Thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm good, Sally. Thanks for having me on. All the way from, where are you? Uh, just across the ditch. I'm in Auckland, New Zealand. So. Oh, and it's like two hours. You're two hours in front, aren't you? Yeah, we're in the future. You're in the future. I like that. Yeah, it's great. In the f- you, you just you just wait, mate. Two two hours from now, things are going to be completely different. <laughs> I'm not going to let you in on the secret, though. <laughs> oh, I'm a bit. I'm scared and excited at the same time. <laughs> Look, thank you so much for coming on to this podcast. You know, tell tell me, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who who's Cliff Harvey? Sounds like a superhero name. Sorry, I just have to say that. Hey, well, that's cool. I, I've never heard that before. I don't think there's many clips around anymore. It used to be much more popular back in the day. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess professionally, I'm a, an educator and researcher mainly nowadays. Uh, so I, I perform research on all sorts of things, mostly around that carb appropriate sort of idea, uh, but also involved in other research uh, alongside that. And day to day, a lot of what I do is education. So I teach uh, sports nutrition, clinical nutrition, and various aspects of nutrition and lifestyle for our health coaching students as well. And so pr- pretty much that's what I do professionally. But I come from originally a background in personal training and strength coaching. That's where it all sort of started. And I think in that respect, it's it's a similar journey to a lot of people out there. You know, they start in personal training, strength coaching, that more sort of physical side of things, then move into nutrition, which is exactly what I did. Uh, studied personal training, strength coaching first. Uh, as part of that qualification, we learned sort of the fundamentals of nutrition coaching and sports nutrition. So that's what I started doing. Uh, but very quickly, I, I moved into the nutrition space and was working with a lot of top athletes within my first couple of years of practice. Uh, then started working with a lot of people who had kind of been... I guess, left out by the health system at the time. We're going back to the 1990s here, so that's how long I've been in the field. And they, they weren't really getting results. You know, people with severe uh, metabolic disorder, people with what we consider to be severe morbid obesity. And um, it was really that clinical journey that that led me to start doing a lot of work in the low-carb space. Um and there's more to that backstory as well, which we can get into. But I think that's also led for people to think that I'm a low-carb guy who does low-carb research. But that's not really the case. You know, what I really have always been interested in is trying to find the the best diet for the, the individual. And that could be anything from very low-carb all the way up to very high-carb. It just really depends on the individual. And through that journey, too, I, I you know, have studied other modalities. Uh, I went off into left field and did an undergrad in naturopathy. And that was driven by my own sort of health journey. Uh, Then sort of circled back and did a lot of modality work around mind-body healthcare. And originally when I went back to university to do my postgrad, that's where I started. I did my early postgrad in mind-body work uh, and mind-body medicine, which is basically sounds a bit woo, but this was legitimate university studies. And what we're really looking at there is psychoneurophysiology. So how how does the mind affect the body and and, uh, vice versa? But then obviously circled back to my master's and doctorate in nutrition. And that's where, uh, you know, a lot of my extant research was done was through that process. And that's where we looked a lot into things like keto flu, uh, ketogenesis, and how to maybe predict what type of diet someone should be on based on their physical markers. That's amazing. I think that's what one of the things that drew me to you when I was 
doing the sports nutrition certificate, when you popped up on the screen, you in, in your, your business was holistic performance nutrition. And I thought, oh, ha- hang on a second. But then you had the science background and you kind of molded that together. And I feel like there's a little bit of a disconnect between uh, medicine, like doctors, and the, the whole holistic approach. Like, uh, and I see it, I only mention it because I see it within like my mum and, you know, older adults. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and people who have chronic, um, chronic pain. Absolutely. And I think there's a real issue there that we've become very polarized. And because of that, people are ostensibly, you know, scientific or evidence-based, but they're not always actually scientific because what they really mean by that is we agree with the, the consensus. So often when people say scientific or evidence-based, of course, many practitioners who say that are legitimately evidence-based, but some people I think are a little bit, they're sort of misunderstanding that a little bit. And instead of being scientific or evidence-based, they're almost position statement-based. So it's whatever the orthodoxy is at the time, they will agree with. And that's not necessarily scientific because science obviously is, is looking at all of the things that might occur, creating hypotheses around certain things, and then testing that hypothesis. So should, we should be testing all sorts of different things. And that's always been one of the things that I've really pushed for is to for practitioners to be more involved in research, uh, for us to be, you know, really pushing the boundaries of research so that we can look more into, you know, what would be considered natural or alternative type methods and modalities to see whether they are valid, because that's that's the key, right? And in doing so, I think we can bridge that disconnect because holism is not anti-science. People think it is. They think it's holistic versus science. But that that makes no sense because holism is all of the things that might affect a person. It's also all of the things that are involved with that person. So what is their internal and external environment? What is their their total psychosocial and psychophysiological milieu? Like what are all of those things? That's holism. But because that's very broad, we then need to use science as our razor to determine what is best for that person. So I explain it to a lot of my students this way. Let's say we have 100 different herbs that have been used for a particular outcome through traditional medicine. And let's say a dozen of them or fewer, let's say three of them have really good evidence from randomized controlled trials. And maybe there's been enough randomized controlled trials that we have systematic reviews and meta-analyses of those trials. And those meta-analyses show that those herbs work. That's what we'll use, right? So we're using a, you know, a natural modality but it's based in evidence. And that's the key. Holism is is the only way we can go, I think. But we always need to temper that with what does the evidence tell us are the most effective modalities within all that could be. Mm, and so there's no makes, disconnect. They, they, they yeah. work together. I'm going to mention the herb thing because it popped in my head. When I was younger, my mom, because we're Middle Eastern, when anything was wrong, you'd be like, okay, have some mint tea. Or have some fennel, or have this or that, and I never knew. I never knew why, but I felt better. Yep. So could it be that the science back then, when my mum was younger, didn't catch up? Couldn't catch up. Like could, they couldn't just they couldn't explain it. Yeah, I think it's it's obviously really important that we have you know modern scientific analysis of all of these things. But that doesn't mean we also discount the the thousands of years of traditional medicine, traditional teaching, and what amounts to basically case evidence. You know, if something has lasted for thousands of years as a treatment for particular conditions, it doesn't mean that it's going to work, but there's a higher likelihood that that's worth investigation rather than just something random, right? Because enough people would have used it and got good results. Now, we don't always know that those results are going to be better than placebo. And that's really what we're trying to tease out with the research. Um, But yeah, I think we we need to consider all of the elements of of evidence, whether that be from traditional medicine, whether that be from case studies, and anecdotes are to some degree case studies. Uh, We need to obviously look at observational research, but then obviously the strongest evidence is from randomized controlled trials. And so that's where the, the rubber really hits the road. So, I mean, I'm a big fan of, 
of herbal medicine. I'm also a big fan of just herbs in general because we often forget that herbs are incredibly nutrient-dense foods. They have a lot of properties that are well-researched now. And uh, because they're so common, a lot of times we don't really think about them. They're not super sexy, right? But if we're talking about nootropics, for example, there's you know decent evidence that sage is a really good nootropic. Improves cognition, um, probably improves memory and things. Yeah. And the sage is such a common herb, right? It's not a particularly sexy thing for people to talk about. Um, But it probably has a lot more evidence than a lot of other nootropics that people would jump into. And uh, like I say, I think we often forget about it because they're so common. But we've also potentially lost at least some of that nutrient density in the modern diet that arises from herbs. Because nowadays we don't eat as many of those herbs. We tend to instead have flavored foods, right? And so this is possibly one of the issues. As we progress further and people eat more and more ultra-refined foods, it's not always just the big things that are occurring in terms of, you know, more processing resulting in faster digestion, you know, greater effects on glucose homeostasis, all that kind of stuff. Or maybe the effects of processing on some of the fats, you know, with conversion to trans fats and things, all of which is not not good. Or just the highly palatable nature of them and the fact that that drives us to overeat. It can also be that some of the things that previously would have been incorporated into a meal are no longer there. Because if you have a synthetic garlic flavoring or a synthetic sage flavoring or a synthetic rosemary flavoring, you're not getting some of those active compounds like rosmarinic acid, which has you know a fair, fair amount of uh, evidence for its benefits to help. That's amazing. I like you've got a herb garden then. <laughs> yeah, I'm well, lucky I don't buy. <laughs> and herbs are awesome. I mean, they're so hardy. You know, we... Um, when we moved into our new place, it was probably two and a half years ago now, I put down, uh, we had, there was this really horrible sort of scoria garden that the previous people had put in and it was nothing in it. It was just scoria. And so it looked really bare and it wasn't particularly inviting. And so I dug it all up and, you know, conditioned the, the soil and all that kind of stuff. And I just planted things that I knew would grow. One of the big problems I think with the way we garden for food is that we're trying to lever foods into micro ecosystems that don't really work, right? And so I put in really hard, because it's really sunny, the drainage wasn't that great, all that kind of stuff. So I improved the drainage, but I knew that it still wasn't going to be the best soil, but I put in really hardy herbs. So I put in sage and rosemary and a, you know, thyme and things like that. And they've gone crazy. And we can't eat all of the herbs that we produce. No way. No way near. Do you dry them? Um, sometimes, yeah. Yeah, I dried my mint. I'm just got a whole jar of mint. Yeah, and I mean, sage has got such a beautiful smell when you're drying it too. But, you know, we, we've got so much. We grow so much rosemary and stuff like that that I'll often just prune it back and we'll burn it over the um, over the summer. You know, put it in the barbecue. Um, if we're doing some barbecuing or smoking, we might, you know, chuck some dried herbs in there because it's really yeah. woody, but, you know, you get that beautiful flavour coming through the meat. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and people are going to be saving money, like – Bro, do you know how expensive um, rosemary is in the shops? Like I walked past the other day and it was like, I've got a whole massive bush of it, huge. And there was like one twig for like four bucks. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to, that's your financial health, you know, as well. And it, it, it saves you effort too, because previously with, you know, what was there before, if weeds got into it, it was a bit of a nightmare. Um, but because the, the herbs just go so crazy, and they grow so well, it takes away all that maintenance. So not only does it fill space, look great, you know, beautiful flowers, um, smells fantastic. We've also got all those herbs and it makes our lives easier. Um, But on the topic of of weeds, you know, weeds are also an often neglected food source. Now, I remember when I was a kid, we'd go up um, to my grandma's place up north and um, she'd often... Maybe she didn't have enough food in the house or whatever, so she'd whip out to the garden and she'd, she'd get some veggies out of, out, of, out of the garden, but she'd also grab some nasturtium and some, you know, some coltsfoot, hawksfoot, um, dandelion, whatever it happens to be, you know, a whole bunch of weeds that were there because they're all edible too, and they're incredibly nutrient-dense. And I remember um, years back I was living with some people and they we lived right on the sea, right, so it was pretty dire for trying to grow vegetables. The the sea would literally wash up into the garden at times if there was a storm. And so it would kill everything. 
But what did grow really well were native varieties of um, puha or sow thistle, right? Sow thistle is great eating and people used to eat it all the time, but now people tend to not eat it. So anyway, my flatmates at the time were pulling out armloads of sow thistle to put in lettuces. Wow. There's no way the lettuces are going to grow, but the sow thistle grows. So you might as well just keep the sow thistle there and eat it. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, it sounds like something my mum would do all the time in the garden. Like she'll have the base basic things like parsley and she'll just throw them, the seeds, and they just grow. Like the basics, mint, parsley, just stuff that you said that are quite hardy and grow. But I yeah. wanted to come back and, and talk about your this whole low-carb, high-carb dilemma that constantly keeps popping up into social media. You got the the low carbers or the I think it's is it the Atkins diet or a higher higher protein. Um you yeah. you've got the majority like maybe athletic performance based or bodybuilders who who advocate for the high carb as well. Like what do average pop do? What do you do? That's a really good question. And I think in the first instance, people need to almost stop worrying about, you know, high carb, low carb and, and following diets, right? Because everyone wants to find the perfect diet. But the reality is, number one, there's not really a perfect diet because we might like we have some pretty strong indications that certain markers might mean that someone does better on, let's say, a low carb or high carb diet. So we can see that physiologically, there might be some things that say, well, this person would probably do slightly better on a high-carb diet, or this person would do slightly better on a low-carb diet. But as you know, if we track someone for long enough and they're able to stick to what's otherwise a good diet, there's actually very very little difference between them over time. So while someone might get slightly better results on low-carb, if they were to follow a high-carb diet that was still overall a good diet let's say after two or three years, they'd probably get similar results. Maybe not quite so good, but similar. And so then that throws in the whole sort of context of that psychosocial milieu, which I alluded to before, which is that if someone is best suited, let's say, to low carb, but they hate eating low carb, or maybe it's not culturally appropriate for them, or maybe it's not you know, going to be easy to do because of their family situation or whatever, then they're not going to be able to stick to it. So it almost doesn't matter whether it's the, you know, supposedly best diet for them and so that's a message that we've really tried to you know get out there but it still hasn't really taken root because people tend to still fall into one of two camps it's either yeah but low carb still superior or the other side people saying yeah no that's wrong because low carb's useless and everyone should be eating more carbohydrate and again it comes down to the individual so there are certain you know, conditions, of course, and I don't mean conditions in terms of health conditions, that plays into it as well, but also conditions of of just being or, you know, conditions based on someone's activity level where they might may want to be eating more or less carbohydrate. And that can also change through time. So one thing that I've discussed a lot, you know, with, with the guys at the Sports Nutrition Association, I've discussed it in podcasts with Eric Helms and others, you know, many, many times, is this idea that we need to... We need to not just fuel for the work required, but eat for the outcome desired. And that shifts from time to time, right? And it shifts depending on the person. So if I use myself as an example, if I want to lean up, I'll probably drop my carbs back. Does that mean that carbs are the problem for leaning up? No, it's just that's the strategy that works well for me. You know, if I try to monitor my calories and you know, still eat carbs moderately, I find that I I just don't do quite so well because I probably tend to overeat. It still comes down to calories in, calories out, right? But functionally, if I just say, you know what, I'm going to cut carbs out for X amount of time, I know that I'll lose body fat. So that's a strategy that works. On the other hand, if I'm trying to put on muscle, and at the moment I'm in more of sort of a, you know, muscle gaining, strength gaining phase, I'll eat lots of carbs because they're anabolic, Right. And so it makes sense to do that. So it's not that for me, either physiologically or psychologically, I find that low carb is the best diet. It's just that it works sometimes really well for a particular outcome. However, when the outcome desired changes, obviously the the nutrition needs to change as well. And I think people need to 
become way less dogmatic about nutrition because mm. we've lost the fun to some degree. You know, I've talked about this with Eric as well. And, and that when I got into nutrition 20, 25 years ago or more, it was, it was fun to play around with different things. You know, you know what? I'm going to try keto for a few weeks. And then, you know, you, you can observe certain things within your body. You're, you're kind of like a citizen scientist just seeing how things work for you. Mm-hmm. That's fun. To me, that's fun, you know. And we, we seem to have lost a bit of that fun where instead of just experimenting and seeing how things work, obviously within the constraints of what is generally a good, healthy diet, uh, we, we tend to not do that anymore. And instead, we're looking for that magic bullet you know, all that silver bullet, I should say, that's like the, the cure-all for, for all of our ills. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that back then that you used to, you know, trial and, and figure things out. But it's like you're not allowed to try things now because it's like if you if you post anything, if you speak to someone about, hey, I'm trying this, it's like, oh, I read on here that it's really bad for your kidneys, Has that, have you seen that come up? It's almost like people are are fearful to have a conversation. Like, you know, I tried to be um, a vegan for four, I think six weeks. I just wanted to try it. You know, I eat a lot of greens. I just wanted to see how I felt. Um, I probably didn't um, uh, plan it very well, plan it. But, um, you know, that changed me and I started to incorporate a bit more um, plant-based fiber and I was okay with that coming from a bodybuilder's background where I was like protein and rice carbs and this is the timing I yeah. need to ha- my background is we eat a lot of tabbouleh do you know what that is yeah yeah I know wow. heaps we have to have a salad with everything we make yeah but yeah it's awesome <laughs> we just have to you know it's just yeah. in in my DNA I can't take that away yeah and yeah, no, yeah. I, I agree and I think that there is some some value in in change. And there's also value in consistency. So, you know, being consistent with a particular strategy for some time is the only way to achieve results. You know, whether that be for training, whether that be for for nutrition and people, you know, when they hop around from one thing to the other, it's very difficult in that context to actually set a goal and have a proper pathway towards it. You know, okay. however, occasionally doing something that's very different to what you usually do can also give you amazing insight, you know, which is why at times I, I, I'm not sure I even want to get into it, but maybe we will anyway, you know, at times a, a fast might be interesting for someone to do. Mm. And, you know, I, I certainly have used fasting initially, not actually for nutritional reasons. I, I used fasting a lot through my teen years into my twenties and things um, mainly because of the, what should we say, like spiritual benefits. But really, in terms of spiritual benefits, what we're really talking about there is the same thing that I'm talking about now, which is recognizing attachment to certain things. You know, you recognize your attachment to patterns of eating. You recognize your attachment to certain foods or maybe to alcohol or whatever it is. Mm. You know, if someone drinks every day, even if it's not at a level that we would say is problematic, they might get some benefit from not Drinking for a couple yeah, of weeks. It's like that habit. It's like eating at night, having a biscuit or a certain amount, like a chocolate or something. It's like, am I really enjoying it or is it just a habit? Can I stop it, you know? Exactly. And, and I think we, we do develop, I, you know, th- there's a fine line between vilifying food and being overly restrictive around our eating patterns. And obviously overly restrictive eating patterns that don't have any flexibility don't really have a good outcome good likelihood of success. But again, there's gray in, in that, you know, there is some nuance there where if we, if we do put some boundaries in, in place occasionally, that can tell us a lot about ourselves. So it's exactly what you're saying there, you know, maybe for a couple of weeks we say, you know what, I'm not going to have that biscuit after dinner. Mm-hmm. And it might be difficult, but we can develop mental resilience and, you know, psycho-emotional resilience around that as well by, by setting goals by exercising our willpower, which is very finite, but doing that for a time and observing the results in the body and the mind, you know, just observing what's happening. Definitely. Have you had um, clients or have you had an experience where people did really, really well on low carb, really well, they've kind of been consistent and then all of a sudden either something has changed and then um, 
they've switched to a more of a high carb diet and it had helped have has can someone change uh, absolutely now uh, what i've observed mostly is it's more of a gradual process but i've certainly observed a lot of people you know bearing in mind that i, I started working with like our diets back in the late 90s so there, there's a lot of time that, that i've been observing people doing this but what i've seen quite a lot is particularly people with metabolic syndrome pre-diabetes type 2 diabetes getting fantastic results from low carb or keto but then also getting to a point where it's not that their results i mean that their results plateau but that's just by that, that's a natural consequence of having got such good results you know losing a lot of body fat correcting blood markers and yes some of it comes down to eating a good diet overall but you know i, I certainly think that the low carb and or keto um diets would have played a role because that they tend to be more effective for metabolic syndrome on balance right but then there comes a point where because the person has improved their insulin sensitivity and they've corrected their blood markers is there still the requirement to continue being low carb for life and some people would say you should and i don't necessarily think think that's the case because in many in many cases that i've seen people have started to add a little bit of carbohydrate back and it's helped them to sustain the diet but it's also helped them to improve their performance because typically as well as they're changing their lives by eating better they also start to have that bleed out into other areas of life so maybe they start sleeping better they typically start training and training a lot more and in the couple of cases that i'm really thinking about right now they started doing a lot more strength training or maybe crossfit based training and it's not that they needed extra carbohydrate for that but it certainly helped and one other big shift that i've seen is that a lot of people particularly five to 10 years ago when keto really started to kind of come back, a lot of people were following extremely rigid forms of keto that were really low in protein. And it's almost as if people were really scared of protein because they thought if I eat protein, it's going to be converted to glucose and it's going to throw me out of ketosis and all this kind of stuff. So one of the things that I, I certainly did back then and continue to do is promote the benefits of protein. So a lot of people who were on those very rigid styles of diet that got fantastic results initially, they do start to, I think, have plateauing results because they're simply not getting enough protein. And so telling them, you know, you can eat more protein. It's not going to cause this massive amount of, of glucose um, creation. Uh, it's not going to necessarily throw you out of ketosis. It might affect ketone levels a little bit, but who cares? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, you're, you're far better off getting in uh, ample amounts of protein for all the other benefits. Mm. And I guess like happiness comes into play in that because I've seen a few people um, go on the keto bandwagon, super strict, as you say, and then, you know, got to their goal. And then it's like, what, what happens next? I have to go out with my friends. Um, am I getting a keto ice cream? Is there a keto ice cream? You start to overthink in your head and it starts yeah. to affect your social life. Um, how do you... How do you almost like coach someone who has got so much good results from that and that it's almost they have to come into mainstream people life um, yeah. and be okay with eating ice cream again? Because they would just say they were so big before and it's yeah. almost like a shift in mindset and a personality change as well. Yeah, well, I think in that instance, you know, we, we really do need to consider the individual because there's, there's a couple of things that come to mind. Number one, I think we, we definitely need to have freedom within structure. And there tends to be, similarly to this debate between low and high, high carb, there tends to be a bit of polarity in our industry around um, being very rigid with nutrition and being almost excessively free. So, like, we could imagine it on one side we have uh, – you know, the, the, the non-diet sort of approach, which can be fantastic. But in some cases, I think people interpret that as meaning just eat whatever you want, whenever you want. And of course, if you do that, you're not going to get good health outcomes, like straight up. On the other hand, if people are really structured and really rigid, it either leads to one of two things, one of three things, really. Disordered eating, um, lack of happiness, <laughs> or... Uh, 
non-compliance. So people are either going to drop out or if they do manage to stick with it, they're, they're probably going to drive some negative stuff. So what's the answer? You know, and I, I think certainly whenever we want to achieve anything, we need to have some some pattern, some pathway, some structure in order to achieve it. But we also have to feel that we have freedom. And so that's where building in freedom to nutrition is critically important. So to bring it back to your point, if someone wants to go out and have an ice cream, let's have an ice cream, man. But the reality is then it's a, a process of coaching that person to understand that that one ice cream is not going to be that big of a deal. And it also doesn't mean that your plan is now broken. I think that's the biggest thing. Like I've, a negative word start to creep in, right? I've cheated. Mm. I've broken my diet, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, well, no, you haven't. You just had an ice cream. It doesn't mean that tomorrow you can't wake up and have that breakfast that you have every other day, which is really conducive to your health. The other thing to consider is that behaviorally people are quite different. And there's been a little bit of research on this, but I don't think enough. And we alluded to it in one of our papers. We did a qualitative paper on the lived experience of a ketogenic diet. And one thing that we explored within that paper was the idea that there were abstainers and moderators. So after a trial that we performed on ketogenic diet, some people, most people actually enjoyed the process. But some of those people said, you know, I enjoyed it, but I, I probably a little bit strict for me. I'd like to add back in a little bit of kumara um, for you guys offshore, that sweet potato. Uh, you know, I'd like to add maybe back in a little bit of rice or pasta here and there or whatever. And I think I'll do fine on that. On the other hand, you had people who said, you know, I enjoyed it and it was really freeing for me because typically the way I eat, I just can't stop eating carbs. So if I have a little bit, I can't stop myself from having more. And so there was quite a big behavioral separation between those two groups. Some people did way better with an abstention type approach, whereas others would do way better with a moderation approach. Now that can change for someone, you know, over time as well. But I think it's important as a coach to recognize what your client's tendency is. And it probably, if I circle back to myself, is probably what I was alluding to before. I find that, you know, the hassle of um, thinking about having a half cup of rice at a meal is like, I can't be bothered with that. I'm just going to cut carbs for a bit if I need to drop my calories back. Mm. And of course, I understand that in, in cutting carbs, what I'm actually doing is cutting back calories. So I, I'm fully aware that it's still based on that energy balance equation. Where I think people get into a needless debate is around the magical properties of diets you know, and not understanding that, sure, it's all about energy, but how people achieve energy balance and energy autoregulation is a critical part of the discussion. Because we can't just tell people, like they've been told for decades, just eat less and move more, because functionally, that's not going to work for many people. But if that person finds that fasting by dropping a meal helps them to achieve energy balance, great, that's a good intervention for that person. But that may not be good for the person who consistently undereats and is suffering poor energy or poor mental health because of it. And, you know, we, we hypothesize, we haven't actually performed the research yet, but we have estimated that maybe 10 to 20% of people um, are habitual undereaters. So the bigger problem we have in, in the world, obviously, at the moment, the modern world, the developed world, I should say, is that um, more people are getting larger, getting more adipose, having more problems with metabolic disorder. But there's a significant minority of people who probably aren't in that boat. They're actually habitually undereating and it's driving really poor outcomes, particularly poor mental health outcomes. So for those people, you wouldn't want nutritional strategies that drive their energy balance down even further. You kind of want to go the other way. It's interesting. It's an interesting balance with people and things. It's not right or wrong answer. As, as you say, it's like what works for the individual. And I just wanted to touch on, um, you mentioned like that the biggest outcome is something that we, we tend to forget when we're on that fat loss or weight loss journey is biomarkers. You know, yeah. your heart, your, your um, blood pressure, like things like that people tend to forget uh, is really important, especially especially as you age. Yeah. What is like, what is the biggest thing that you're seeing now through your um, 
through your studies and research that um, is stopping people from improving that? Good question. Like, why aren't we I- getting a good blood pressure result? Why? Like, we're, we're modern times, we're so smart, we've got, I can just. People don't even need me as a trainer. They can just go to Google and they just get things yeah. will just populate. Well, I think it's because we're we're trying to we're trying to pin things on one or two simple interventions. And I think that's the problem. You know, when we're talking about something like blood pressure, if you go to your doctor and you've got high blood pressure, they're going to tell you to reduce your sodium intake. Right. And I know that there's a lot of debate around that, but I would say that it's probably a very inefficient way to approach it because even with drastic reductions in sodium, we don't really shift blood pressure all that much. Now, again, I know that some people listening to this are going to dispute that, but that's what I see in the research from my reading of it. And so I'm not saying that, you know, it's an arbitrarily bad thing to do. To be aware of sodium intake, sure, why not? But I just don't think it's a good nutrient of interest in that respect because the bigger issue is why are we potentially eating too much sodium? And I would also posit that a lot of us aren't, but if we are, why are we doing that? It's typically not because we're adding truckloads of salt to things. It's because we're eating a diet that's high in ultra-refined foods. So what are the other issues there? Well, you know, poor glucose homeostasis and high blood sugar levels are absolutely a cofactor for blood pressure as well. And we typically see correction of blood pressure through better dietary interventions overall, not not even talking about reducing sodium. And so we need to take a step back and say, well, what are we really looking at here? Do we need to pin this down to one or two nutrients or do we need to take a step back and look at our entire food environment? And if we're doing that, why not take a step back and look at our entire food and lifestyle environment? Because stress is also a big driver of blood blood pressure. And there are also other cofactors for blood pressure that have previously been unrecognized, like maybe interplay with sleep, which obviously interplays with stress. It's all bidirectional. And things like the microbiome, which also interplays with sleep and with stress. And obviously our activity, movement, strength training. And so we need to really start to say then, well, we need to be focusing on a better way of living rather than just trying to isolate on particular markers and symptomatic treatments for those markers. And then that's when we start to ask the really big questions, which are things like, well, why do we live the way we do? And I would posit that there's way more going on there than, you know, people are even prepared to discuss. You know, why are we suffering rapidly increasing uh rates of poor mental health, whether it be depression, anxiety, all that kind of stuff. I'd say it's because it's the world we're living in at the moment. We have negative media exposure. We spend too much time in front of screens. We don't spend enough time outside. But even more than that, fundamentally, we've forgotten a lot of the things that I think are key to human existence, like egalitarianism and kindness and compassion and generosity. You know, if we start to really approach those things in a holistic way, again, it's backed by evidence, right? But we're looking at the person in a very holistic way. I think we we start to come to some very stark conclusions about how we're living. And there's a real imperative there to start living in a different way and, you know, treating one another better uh, and, you know, maybe not being so focused on the, the rubbish that we typically focused on, consumerism, materialism and stuff. So I definitely went down the rabbit hole there, but you I hope did, that's cool. but <laughs> it makes sense. Sometimes it sounds a bit um, airy-fairy if you want to call it or hippie, but in, in its essence, we don't just live to eat and um, lose weight, <laughs> you know? No. We've got fa- and we also don't live to simply accumulate more stuff. You know, we know from, again, this is all backed in evidence. We know from the evidence that up to a point, we will get happier if we accumulate income or wealth, but only to a point. And that point is lower than people think. And past that point, we don't really improve our happiness. So as a health practitioner and researcher, it seems, you know, people are often often wonder, why do you talk about happiness so much? And it's kind of like, well, what else is there? The reason we're all in this game, I think, is to is to provide conduits to happiness you know if if i have an athlete and they're a world champion 
and they want to achieve a world championship. Why do they want to achieve that? Well, there's something inherent in it that is driving their life of passion and purpose and creativity and therefore happiness. So happiness is always the outcome. But how do we achieve that? You know, we achieve it through doing the things that we do day to day better. And a big part of that is nutrition, obviously. Mm, I love that. That nutrition that definitely plays a part. There's the intertwining of happiness. If you could give like three points to someone who feels a bit lost, who's listening to this podcast, who's who's um, you know, tried a low fat, a low low carb diet, kind of works, but they're kind of they're feeling a bit lost at the moment. They're looking at their Instagram yeah. and they've got someone posting about how much they ate in a day, twelve hundred calorie deficit. <laughs> I think that's going around. Uh, and they're deviating from their culture because, you know, um, this Insta coach tells them to have high protein and oats. What, what can you say to someone? I think it's the same as what I'd say to anyone who's in a bit of a funk or who is starting any process, which is, you know, go back to basics and start with your why, right? So why are you wanting to achieve whatever it is that you want to achieve? So let's say someone is really despondent because they can't lose that, that weight. The bigger question for a clinician or a coach to ask is not, it's not even why do you want to lose the weight? That's the starting point. You know, why, why do you want to lose weight? And the person's going to come back with an answer. It might be that, um, you know, if I lose weight, I feel that I'll be more confident and have more energy. Okay, cool. But that's not where we want to leave it, right? Why do you want to be more confident and have more energy? And then they start to think, well, I want to have more energy because I want to be a good dad and I want to spend more time with my kids and I want to have, you know, just be there more mentally for the people around me. Okay, cool. So that's, that's we're starting to get something more evocative, right? You want to be living a good life and spending good time with your family because they're really important. You could probably go down several more layers, mm -hmm. right? But I think those layers of why are really important. Once someone starts to attach to what's really important in their life, then they can start to set objective goals that are way more important, right? You probably would have seen this as a coach plenty of times. Someone comes in and says, I want to run a marathon. And most coaches will say, cool, I can help you do that. Here's a nutrition plan for your marathon runner. But sometimes it might be a good idea to say, oh, that's awesome. Why do you want to run a marathon? Say, oh, because I want to lose weight. And immediately your bells are going off, right? Because if that person hasn't run for 20 years, and they've set a goal to run a marathon in three months because they want to lose weight, it's a really inefficient and potentially dangerous way to do it. So you might say, cool, well, let's, let's investigate your why a little bit further. And then they'll probably come to their own conclusion that, you know what, a marathon's probably a pretty shitty way to do this. Or they might still double down on it and say, yep, you know what, I, I recognize all of that, but this is something I really want to do for me. Cool. If that's the case, do it. Right. So people start to then connect to what's most evocative for them, the life they want to be living, and then things become a heck of a lot clearer. They can start to set those objective goals that are way more important than what we see someone else doing on social media. Right. And that's why I've written a lot of articles about social media and media exposure and stuff, because it's great to a point, but past a point, it can become really super negative too. And a lot of our ideas of what health is, what strength is, you know, even to the point of what we should be doing in our lives and how we should be living is framed by these, these images we get that are not real. You know, that's not how people live. They're projecting a facade up there and everyone's buying into it and saying, I want that. But we can't say I want that until we've actually realized what it is we actually want. And the only way we do that is by asking ourselves those those layers of why you definitely have to do some research in yourself to find out exactly what you want and not just flick online but i want to ask one more question before you wrap it up today because i know you're very busy and oh, we can we can you can ask as many questions as you want <laughs> it's because i said um your name's like a superhero isn't it that's why at the beginning <laughs> yeah. tell me your favorite herb and how you would use it. You mentioned sage, but I want to know the super herb that Cliff uses. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, this could be dangerous. Um, you know what? I, I think the, the super herb that I, I'm going to be a little bit facetious here, but the super herb that I think is very advantageous for some people 
Uh, and I believe we need to drop a lot of the restriction around this cannabis. Okay. Straight up. Yeah. 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 You know, I, I think that prohibition is has not served us well, and I think it's prohibited uh, a, a lot of you know potentially really interesting research, which is now obviously happening. Um, certainly not saying either that it's the cure-all, like some people say, or that it will cure this or cure that. It's just something that can be of benefit to people because it offers relief, particularly for pain disorders, um, with a, a, a heck of a lot lower risk profile than most of the medications provided. Outside of that, um, I really like Sage. <laughs> You know, I think Sage is really cool. I think it's um, it's super interesting as a nootropic. I think it's got some decent research behind it, but you know, there'll there'll be more coming out, I'm sure. Um, and we just use that a lot in in cooking. It's great with with meats. You know, we love it with a steak. Um, but it, it's also an interesting thing that people can. Well, I'm not saying people should do yeah. this, but that we've mucked around with. Um, you know, t- taking different forms, vaporizing and stuff like that to see if there's any benefit. For, for cognition, yep. um, but I, I really dig sage. Um, it's interesting you mentioned cannabis because um, it's it's becoming a bit more prevalent um, with with oh, I don't know if it's certain GPs will give you a referral, but it's such a long process. So, like yeah. my mom is eighty plus. She went through cancer. She had the treatment. She's got degenerative hip. She can't have any further treatment. It has she has to have a hip operation, and She's on the highest amount of painkillers, yeah. and you know it's stopping her from being from from moving because she gets tired. And then yeah. I'm like, well, she can't keep taking that because <laughs> it's affecting her mood. Yeah, and this is one of the big issues I think. And you know, let's we need to be realistic and and understand that there are there are some potential harms from cannabis, right? But when we consider it on balance, it's still, as a medication, remarkably safe, particularly when we compare it to painkilling medications, because a lot of the ones that we would use in, you know, severe pain disorders and, you know, um, rheumatoid arthritis and things like that, they've got a pretty significant risk profile. And so if we're just looking at it on balance, we would say, well, if we're looking to prescribe a medication or if a medication is prescribed, it should be one that's effective and has the best safety profile. And so I, I think there needs to be a lot less restriction around that, recognizing that overall, you know, prohibition has has not helped socially. You know, it's probably driven crime. It's cost I think governments, the evidence countries is there. a lot of money. And people don't have access to it. Uh, crime does go up. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. exactly. And it, it – it, it feels, I've, seen it, I mean, um, I've seen it even like with pills at festivals where you got a kid who dumps 10 because there's a dog there and they they end up ODing. Just things like that. That's the yeah. other side of the spectrum. But And, it you know, it, it provides a revenue stream to organized crime. 100%. And when you, when you decriminalize, you take that away. I think one of the things, though, that people need to start to understand is that there's a bit of a perception that if people take a psychoactive drug, let's call it a drug, but a psychoactive plant or a psychoactive um, fungus, that they're going to take that in a dose that is going to completely wipe them out, right? You're just going to be really high or you're going to you know, be tripping balls off some mushrooms or whatever which might be the case. And that's completely fine if that's done in a completely safe environment and you know what the outcome's going to be and all that kind of stuff. Got no problem with that. However, what people don't often think about is the the dose effect. And I know from, you know, working with a lot of cancer patients, working with a lot of people with severe autoimmune conditions and rheumatoid arthritis and various other pain disorders, that a, a lot of the people who are taking cannabis for, say, pain relief or for reducing anxiety, things like that, they're microdosing it. We don't talk about microdosing cannabis, but that's certainly something that people out there are doing in the field, and it seems to be incredibly effective. Now, if that's the case and someone's been, well, I I know from experience because I was prescribed meloxicam because I have um, a a type of autoimmune arthritis that is sort of a comorbid with my Crohn's disease, Uh, and and I, I handle 
that stuff really well, right? I'm, I'm pretty much asymptomatic most of the time, but there, there have been times where I've had really severe and debilitating joint pain. And so I went to my doc, talked about it, and I was prescribed meloxicam. Now, that's a very hard-hitting painkiller, and it's got a very significant risk profile. It's pretty hepatotoxic. I don't really want to be taking that, right? So the, the option then is to take something that is relatively harmless, that gives me the same benefit. And thankfully, I can get a prescription for, for, for cannabis for that. And I know it's very difficult to do. It's also incredibly expensive, expensive for people. Yeah. And so you're basically forcing people who could otherwise benefit from, from something to be in the black market, associating with, yep. you know, potentially organized crime, criminals. and um, Risking everything. They risk, you know, going to jail. Exactly. Or beggaring themselves yeah. by going through the proper yeah. channels and paying way too much for something. It's just, um, it doesn't make any sense yeah, to me. Yeah, definitely. Well, Cliff, this has gone <laughs> to a different realm. <laughs> I feel like we're... I'm sorry, but that's what I do. <laughs> gone and taken some kind of mushroom and we're in the mycelium doing all that stuff. Um, but I just want to say thank you so much. Tell us where we, where we can find you because I know you're not that active on the socials when I found you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm I'm active enough, I think, but yeah, I, I try and stay off yep. social a lot, a lot of the time. Um, but yeah, people can find me at uh, cliffharvey.com, so just my name.com, and they can find all of the education stuff we do at my institute, the Holistic Performance Institute, which is holisticperformance.institute. I love it. Thank you so much for jumping Thanks, on. Um and talking to us about all your experiences, all your studies, and um, just shining a light on the low-carb, high-carb conundrum, the fitness industry, medical marijuana, and what herb you like. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks, Sally. Thank you for listening to my episode today. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, it will be greatly appreciated if you have a spare 60 seconds to put a review on this podcast. It would mean so much, especially to a small business. Thank you again for taking the time to listen. I'll see you soon. Bye.